0: Well, we are um, finishing up our series um, called um, Kill the Spider. And I'm reading today from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against "...buckled around your waist with a breastplate of righteousness in its place, and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests." And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Well, the letter to the Ephesians was one of four letters the Apostle Paul wrote a while in prison. And as he sits in his cell awaiting trial, he sees this battle raging. But it's not a battle between two earthly armies, flesh and blood, as he says in verse 12. It is a spiritual battle between um, evil and and us. Now that may seem strange to our ears because right now we're sitting with friends and family and people that we love, and and maybe to you life seems perfect and beautiful and, and peaceful, but Paul says that we are in a war zone, and 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that it never stops. And Jesus confirmed that in the Lord's Prayer when he taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. And not only do we see it in in Paul's writings, but in the writings of Peter and John. And we see it again and again, uh, stories in the Old Testament, and all four of the Gospels. Scripture sees the struggle to be real. In 1 Timothy, uh, Paul mentions too, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have made shipwreck of their faith and have been handed over to Satan. And I would say that my experience confirms that the struggle is real, that hardly a day goes by anymore when I don't feel like I am wrestling with powers and principalities. And many of you have seen it in your own lives, as we have been identifying some of the spiders lurking in the dark recesses of our hearts. Darkness does not like the light of Christ shining on it. So how does this happen? I mean, shouldn't Christians be immune from this? If Jesus set us free, why do we still have to struggle? You see, there are lots of things out there that would like to pull you into their circle of influence. And generally, God's grace protects us. But sometimes we are lured to to, 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 to dance too close to danger. And we make bad decisions guided not by the wisdom of God, but by our own self-will, our own passions, and we are drawn into the influence of evil. And so salvation does not end our capacity to sin. We still battle with it. And sometimes we give the devil a foothold in our lives. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he says, In your anger do not sin, and do not give the devil a foothold. I have to admit, sometimes I've gotten angry enough, I've given the devil a foothold. Or sometimes it's, it's anger, sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's self-hatred, bitterness or anxiety or shame. Uh, pornography has become a huge issue in our culture. Even things like workaholism can give evil a foothold into our lives. As I've said earlier and, and others as well, the devil can take good things and pervert them so that they begin building their webs uh, in our lives. You see, the devil is always on an expansion program. He looks for those weak moments. He doesn't care uh, how he gets into the place. He doesn't care what opportunity he is given. And he's not content with what we give him. And when we give him a foothold, no matter how small and simple it may be, given time, it becomes complex and devastating. Lives become confused and, and mangled in all kinds of devastation and destruction and ruin because the enemy will not stop once he gets a foothold. So basically, Paul is warning us in this verse, in these verses, he's saying, take it seriously. And then he tells us how to fight this war. Verses 10 through 11, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So we're not going to do it in our own strength. We're not going to be able to do it with our own intelligence that it requires God's weapons. And folks, if we fail to comprehend this, we will not be able to kill the spider if we only try to solve it with natural methods. As good as those may be, oftentimes those are simply a, a temporary cure. We're just cleaning out the cobwebs. We're not dealing with the spider And sometimes we need to use therapy and sometimes we need to use medication, but we need to use the weapons that God places at our disposal. It's not either or, it's both. And so starting in verse 14, Paul gives us this picture of how a Christian dresses for warfare and it looked very much like the typical Roman soldier of his day. Remember, where is Paul? He's in jail, so he would have seen Roman soldiers each and every day that he was there in prison. He knew what they wore. He knew what each piece was for, and so he named six articles of warfare that you and I need to be familiar with, and he begins with the belt of truth. You see, a a soldier's belt did basically two things. It protected the midsection and gave him freedom of movement. See, living according to truthfulness will have the same effect upon us. Now, Paul here is not talking about the truth. There's no definite article here in the Greek. He's talking about truthful living. He's talking about truthful thinking. He's talking about truthful speaking. He's talking about our behavior. He's talking about honesty. He's talking about integrity. Remember, Jesus called the devil the father of lies. Lying always backfires, amen? My father could always sniff out my lies. (laughs) And I was usually able to sniff out the lives of my children. (laughs) We do it. We lie oftentimes to protect ourselves, but it only gets us in deeper. And then Paul says we're to wear the breastplate of righteousness, so that would have covered the vital organs. That would have covered the heart. Our breastplate is righteousness. And, and again, what Paul is talking about here is righteous behavior. What does that look like? It's about living a holy life. It's about living a, a loving life. And, and it's about living a life of, of good works. He's not saying that good works save us. He, he settled that question in, in chapter two. But what he's saying is that righteous living, doing good works, paves the way for God's strength in your life. That the more righteous we live, the more we are protected from harm. And he goes on, he says, We are to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace that we're to be ready to share the peace of God with others. It sounds very familiar to that passage in Isaiah 52 where he says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. We defeat evil as we share God's peace, as we live in God's peace. And then he says we'll take up the shield of faith. The shield of faith, he says, protects against Satan's darts, the lies, the the deceptions, the anxieties, the fears that he throws at us. And faith is an important um, weapon in our arsenal. Roman soldiers had two kinds of shields. They had a small one, which was used in in hand-to-hand combat. And and then they had a large one, about four and a half feet tall and about two feet wide. And and each soldier, they would stand side by side, holding up the shield, and it formed a wall against the approaching enemy army. It formed a wall against the flaming arrows used against them. And Paul said, that's what faith does. That that faith gives us complete confidence in God to give us the victory. It reminds us that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And when you and I, when we stand side by side with each other, using our faith as a shield, we'll be able to quench the darts that are thrown at us. It's something that we do together. If you're alone by yourself, it's a whole lot harder. And then he says we're to put on the helmet of salvation Paul is talking about the way that we think, that just as a helmet protects your head, salvation does the same thing, that this sense of of salvation, this confidence in God's love for us gives us the assurance in the battles of life. It reminds us that we belong to him, that we are his child. You see, that's why I, I refuse to give in to despair, to no matter how bad things get in life, God's salvation protects my thoughts. And when I think about what he has done for me, when I, when I meditate upon God's promises, e- even in my darkest days, I, I can't despair. It's hard for me to imagine any situation that's beyond his control. And when I look at a, a situation that seems too big for me to, to handle, then I meditate upon God's salvation. That no matter how bad things may seem today, I know because of his great love for me, it's only temporary. It won't last. And then he says we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which he says is the Word of God. Uh, Remember in Jesus' 40 days of of temptation in the wilderness, how he used Scripture to, to fight with the devil. That's why you and I, we need to read, we need to memorize, we need to study God's Word. We need to make it a part of who we are. Folks, there have been many times when, when I've been struggling with something and a, a verse of Scripture will come to me for that specific situation. See, if I don't spend time in, in, in the Scriptures, I'm not going to have this promise of God when I need it the most. And then finally he says we need to use Prayer. Verse 18, he says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So he's saying that prayer is our most powerful and our most far-reaching weapon. You know, it's interesting. The disciples, as far as we know, uh, never were given a lesson from Jesus on, on how to preach a sermon. Jesus never taught them how to lead uh, a Bible study, but he did give them a class On how to pray. You see, it's prayer that that saves us over and over again when when you and I, when we're struggling against uh, powers and principalities, sometimes we're simply reduced to calling out one word, the name of Jesus. Sometimes that's all that we need because the Bible tells us that evil trembles with the sound of that name of Jesus. And so Paul's strategy is simple pray for everyone, pray for everything on all occasions, all kinds of prayers and requests for all the Lord's people. So those are the weapons that we use to kill our spiders. And last week I I shared my story with you of how I was able to finally corner my spider, but I didn't tell you how I killed it. In fact, at that moment when I finally discovered what what was causing me some of my issues, I, I thought I had killed it, but the truth is I just cornered it. And it became worse not better. I felt this full court press against me, and I began to wonder if I could ever change, if I could ever be a different person. And then some months later, one weekend in July, Melinda was gone, and I was by myself, and I was in the spiritual darkness, this place of spiritual emptiness. And I was having serious thoughts about whether God could could help me. Well, I knew God could help me, but, but I was wondering why nothing changed. Why I couldn't be different. So I decided to go for a run to, to clear my head, and, and as I ran, I had this intense conversation with God, and I had it out loud. I, I don't know what my neighbors were thinking as I went running by their homes. I was kind of, I was angry with God. I was kind of yelling at Him. But, you know, I really didn't care. they know I'm strange anyhow. It was all right. And I just began to ask God, God, you know, what do I need to do to change? What do I need to do to kill this spider? And God answered me. And really it was pretty simple. The first thing that he taught me was I just need to repent. You see, repentance, we're taking ownership of my part in the lie. Now, the Greek word for repentance means to turn around. It's like driving down a road, realizing that you're suddenly going the wrong way and and doing a 180, turning around and and heading the other way. It's it's a whole lot more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's about making a life change. It's about turning away from from my sin and and then turning towards God. I had to agree with God that that not only had I been believing the lie, but, but I had lost my belief in God's truth. That I needed to come clean and, and ask forgiveness for, for my unbelief in God's promises about who I am, who He is, and, and His plan for my life, His truth about my future. I had to get real with God, I had to repent. The second thing that God taught me that morning was that I, I needed to verbally reject and to renounce the lie. I think there's power in that. I think there's power in, in doing it out loud and doing it verbally. To reject the fear, to reject the worry, to, to reject the anxiety. And in that, it, it means that, that I'm refusing to live the lie any longer. And so I just prayed this out loud. I said, I renounce it in Jesus' name. You know, Jesus did that oftentimes. Oftentimes. In Mark chapter 9, Scripture says when Jesus saw that a a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Do you see the confidence that Jesus had? He knew he had the authority, that he had the power over evil. We need to pray with confidence. We need to reject. We need to renounce the lie that's holding us bound. And then God Taught me that I needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, whenever you take something away, you need to replace it with something else or you'll have this void there. And what we find is that the enemy will try to fill it with something else. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. You see, we need to refill. We need to allow God's Holy Spirit to grant us that joy and that peace and that love. Folks, this was such a breakthrough. I got home from my run and and I felt like a different person. And the funny thing is is that when we started reading this book that kind of follows this series by Carlos Whitaker, I was surprised to see that he followed the exact same process of repentance, renouncing, rejecting, and replacing with something good. But why should we be surprised? God's truth is truth. And here's why experienced that I had to do this several times I thought once I prayed the spider would be dead that that was it there was no more but I've talked to others and they've had the exact same experience that that evil can be persistent and that it looks for opportune times to sneak back in but but God is greater folks we need to send it to the cross Jesus will crush it and send it into the abyss of his judgment So what difference does it make? Well, several weeks ago, Melinda and I had the opportunity to get away for a few days. And on the way home from our trip, I asked her if she had had a good time. And she looked at me and she said, you know what? It was the best ever. I thought it was a good time, but the best ever? (laughs) And I said, why? Why do you feel that way? And she said, because you are such a different person. Isn't that amazing? 46 years of being a Christian, 41 years of being married, and guess what? It's never too late to change. Jesus can do that. I want you to hear the video testimony of another woman in our church who killed her spider. Let's listen.
1: So my parents were married at a young age, um, 16 and 18. Um, they, With that comes some immaturity and they didn't know um, how to be married. Um, there's some dysfunctions in the family. And so I was born a year, almost a year later after they were married. And um, fast forwarding to me being, being about three years old, I was placed in foster care. Some things that happened in our family and um, I remember it very clearly even at the age of three, being taken from them. It was a pretty traumatic experience. And so I was, after about six months, uh, reconciled with my parents, and um, there continued to be a rocky marriage. So fast forward until I was eight years old, um, about three days after my eighth birthday, my parents were split up and um, they came together to have a discussion that led to an argument that led to some domestic violence. And um, my father killed my mother that day. And so I lost both parents at the age of eight. My dad, you know, he would, we would have correspondence back and forth while he was in prison and we would write letters and talk on the phone and have visitations and things. and. Um, You could just see in him, I've seen a change in him through, you know, he came to recognize Christ as his Lord and Savior through being incarcerated um, and asked for forgiveness. And God was dealing with me in my heart about forgiving him. It was a long process to do that, but I found it in my heart to do it. So last year it was announced that we were going to have a healing school and Dr. Bobby Cabot was going to come back and I had seen her at the conference that the year prior, and so I just had this um, stirring within my heart that I should attend. I followed God's voice and leading me, Um, and I'm so glad that I did. Um, Through that conference, I realized uh, the Holy Spirit just brought up to me, stirred up within me that I had some unforgiveness towards my mom. I have um, a relationship with my dad, who, basically, you know, took you know took my mother's life, um, and so I've had I've worked through that forgiveness with him, and um, that relationship has been reconciled. But I never, up until that point, realized that I had held on to some unforgiveness towards my mother, and even I, even some grief that I still carried around related to losing my mom. Um, And so that that was my spider. Just the grief that I had, um, the unloving, the feeling of being unloved, and um, even some rejection. You know, I was a daughter of a murderer. And now I realize that I am a daughter of a king. I have so much joy. I do. Like, there's a joy I have especially now in worship. (laughs) I just want to worship God with everything that I have because He has restored me, He's taken off. He's taken that mourning from me, He's taken that grief from me, He's taken that feeling of being unloved and um, unforgiving. And I can forgive myself, I can forgive others. Um, I have more mercy towards others and love to give and I don't feel rejected.
0: Last week, we had uh, 10 of our men who attended the walk to Emmaus, and and there's a part in the walk to Emmaus that's called dying moments, and it happens right before communion, and in that, you are asked to name what it is that you need to die to, and that's what I want us to do today, that as we prepare ourselves to take communion, I want you to, to name that spider. And as you take the bread and as you drink the cup to find that freedom to live a totally new and different life. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we repent of the lie. We renounce its power in our lives. And we ask that at this time, as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup, that you would fill us afresh with your presence. Amen.